This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. They descended the mine for inspection, never dreaming fate trailed them close by. With a crash that gave them no warning, entombed in that mine there to die. Working deep within a mine shaft is not a career for the faint of heart. The risks are something that miners keep in mind every time they venture underground. The harsh and morbid reality of working in the mining industry is that it's entirely possible to go to work one day and not make it home. Accidents involving conveyors, flooding, collapses, and explosions make the workday anything but routine. And that's not even taking into account respiratory diseases, which can lead to premature death. But despite all the potential safety issues, few miners ever expect to go to work and lose their lives to workplace violence. As far back as the 1860s, coal mining has driven the economy of many towns and cities across the United States. That included those in Southern Illinois. The sheer number of local men who were employed at the mines in the area meant there was a strong union presence. In Southern Illinois, it was the United Mine Workers of America, or UMWA. The union fought for wage increases and improved working conditions for the many employees it represented. After all, it was their hard work that contributed to the profits of their wealthy employers. Of course, industrial disputes were inevitable and sometimes they escalated from heated negotiations into flat-out violence. Between 1890 and 1930, a series of clashes between the mining companies and mine workers broke out across the U.S. They became known as the Coal Wars, and in many cases, they were deadly. More and more, employees were taking up arms to defend their workplace rights, including the right to go on strike. In southern Illinois around the turn of the century, going on strike often meant going to war. When talking failed, it was not uncommon for union workers to use whatever means necessary to disrupt the mining operations. It was not only a sign of force to their employer, but the tactic was also used to intimidate the people hired to replace the striking miners. Random gunfire would often be heard outside the gates of a mine to terrorize the workers inside. Searchlights were used on the tents of the sleeping miners, and loud music would be played all night. Local sheriffs rarely got involved, usually considering the disputes company problems, not theirs. Also, with senior law enforcement officials relying on the votes from townspeople to keep their jobs, authorities were usually unwilling to get involved. In the summer of 1922, that would be a contributing factor to one of the most shocking and gruesome events in the history of U.S. labor relations. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. In the early 1920s, the Southern Illinois Coal Company, owned by engineer William J. Lester, opened a new strip mine outside the town of Heron. Lester wasted no time, wanting to ship as much coal as possible in order to settle business debts. 
he knew that most of the workforce in the area was unionized. He also had to balance union demands without compromising the company's profits. But in early April 1922, the United Mine Workers of America used their growing influence to announce a nationwide strike, crippling production. The massive protest would impact around three dozen mines in southern Illinois, and no one knew how long it would last before their demands were met. To ensure there was no interruption at his mine, Lester initially said that he was open to negotiating and even agreed to some of the union conditions. He and the UMWA eventually struck an agreement which allowed his unionized employees to continue digging. Until negotiations were complete, however, the coal would remain underground. Assuming the strike would be over quickly, the coal company saw the deal as a win. What they had not anticipated was just how long the dispute would last. Two months after the strike began, there was still little progress and no end in sight. In the meantime, because of the prolonged shortage, the price of coal was going through the roof. Lester had nearly 60,000 tons of coal ready to go, but under the terms of the agreement, could do nothing with it until the strike was over. Putting profit before promises, he decided that breaking the deal with the UMWA was worth any foreseeable risks. To Lester, this had become a battle of corporate survival, and he was taking no prisoners. He quickly fired any unionized employee that disagreed with his decision to ship out the coal, which, almost overnight, left him with virtually no workers. He enlisted members of a group called the Steam Shovelmen's Union to help move the coal. But as far as the UMWA was concerned, the Shovelmen's Union was no better than hiring non-union workers, labeling them an outlaw organization. The union issued a statement to its members, encouraging them to treat the group as they would any other criminal. When that move failed, Lester arranged for around 50 mine workers to be brought in from Chicago. Unfortunately, few of them knew exactly the extent of the conditions they were about to get involved in, or that they had actually been hired as replacements. If they had known what was coming, all of them would have headed straight back home. Along with the 50 or so mine workers, the company also hired guards to protect against the increasingly angry protesters. They were reportedly armed with machine guns in case the union decided to escalate the protest. Once news reached the strikers about their replacements, escalation would be a real possibility. Instead of putting the blame directly on the coal company, the union focused their anger on the new workers, labeling them scabs. The union fellows here called up the representative theirs in Chicago to investigate it, and the war came back, I saw the war that there was no such union, that they were ordinary scabs. Well, what does that mean? They'd lied about belonging to some uh, sort of a union in Chicago, see. For the strikers, there was only one way to resolve the insulting situation and get their jobs back, and it wasn't through more negotiating. In the early hours of June 21, 1922, a truck carrying nine strike breakers and several armed guards was on its way to Heron. When the vehicle was about 15 miles from the town, it was ambushed by a group of angry union workers. During the attack, 
Three of the passengers were injured, as the remaining six ran off, escaping into a nearby river. The incident was just the beginning of what would become an all-out war. Hours after the attack on the truck, hundreds of union members attended a rally that had been organized in the Heron Cemetery. As the rally heated up and emotions ran high, the mob left the cemetery and headed into town on foot. Their first stop was to the local hardware store, where they ransacked the place, stealing as many guns and as much ammunition as they could find. Now fully armed, the strikers headed straight to the mine. At around 3.30 p.m., the angry mob had the entrance to the mine surrounded. Some reports claim that the strike breakers and guards did their best to antagonize the mob, only adding to the already volatile situation. It didn't take long before shots were fired. When the gunfire stopped, two union members were dead, and another would later die from his wounds. The superintendent of the mine made a desperate call to the Illinois National Guard, asking for protection and reinforcements. He had already tried calling the county sheriff's office for help, but no one responded. Given the sheriff was not only an ex-miner, but was also running for county treasurer at the time, it's not surprising that no action was taken by local law enforcement. So, in the absence of any leadership or assistance by police to bring an end to the unrest, the National Guard arranged to send troops to the area. As the mobilization effort was taking place, the National Guard began negotiating with the Union, hoping to reach a peaceful resolution. The talks appeared to be going well, and according to the superintendent, the situation outside the mine had settled down. When they heard there was no longer a threat to the mine workers, the National Guard troops were called off. A truce between the coal mine and the Union was taking shape, and would begin with a representative from both sides waving a white flag. But whether it was a misunderstanding or intentional, when the local vice president of the UMWA arrived at the mine entrance, there was no exchange of peace. It seemed he wasn't convinced the company would honor the terms of the agreement, and so he just turned around and left without doing anything. Unfortunately, without a truce, the replacement workers and the guards were prisoners inside the mine. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. When officials from the National Guard had not received confirmation that the truce had been finalized, they tried contacting the superintendent. 
After repeated attempts to contact the mine, they discovered the phone lines had been cut. The Heron mine was now on its own. By late afternoon, as word spread across the region, more Union members descended upon Heron. Like the locals had done earlier that day, they scraped together whatever firearms and ammunition they could find and headed for the mine. Later that evening, following outside pressure, the sheriff finally agreed to intervene and oversee the safe evacuation of the strikebreakers. Despite the clear urgency of the situation, however, the sheriff decided to wait until the following morning. But on the streets of Heron, things were escalating. Union leaders gave inflammatory speeches to rile the growing crowd, preparing them for the fight ahead. Back at the mine, the violence had picked up where it had left off. As more gunfire was being exchanged, other strikers were using explosives to destroy bulldozers and other equipment around the property. With the mob outside the gate outnumbering the workers inside, ten to one, the company made a final attempt to negotiate their safe passage out of the mine. A guard was sent out to see if the union members would accept a surrender on the condition that the strikebreakers were allowed to leave town. They agreed, and soon everyone inside, including the fifty workers, the guards, and the superintendent, appeared with their hands in the air. Triumphant, the mob lined the men up and marched them towards the Heron train station. The five-mile hike was terrifying as the crowd yelled insults and did their best to intimidate. As the march continued, so did the harassment, only it was becoming more aggressive. From just hurling insults, the mob soon took to physically assaulting the men. Using the butt of their rifles, they began hitting them across their faces and their heads. The march was exhausting, and now beaten and bloody, some of the men were falling behind. The first to stop was the mine superintendent, who could no longer manage to keep up. When it became clear to his captors that he wasn't going to move, two men dragged him off the road and out of sight. The last thing the superintendent reportedly heard was one of the men telling him, I'm going to kill you and use you for bait to catch the other men. He was then shot twice in the stomach, once in the chest, and once in the head. His body was later discovered by a local farmer. Having heard the gunshots, the workers now knew the mob would stop at nothing to exact their revenge for taking their jobs. A UMWA leader was reportedly overheard telling members not to kill any of the men in public, instead saying, Take them over in the woods and give it to them. Kill all you can. That was all the encouragement the mob needed. The walk into town had now become a death march into the nearby woods. They walked until they reached a barbed wire fence, at which point they were ordered to line up against it. The men were then told to run. What followed was nothing short of a massacre. As the terrified men ran for their lives, the strikers began firing. Those who couldn't escape in time or had become tangled in the barbed wire fence were shot. Others who were able to get away ran as fast as they could through the darkness. But not being familiar with the area, to their horror, instead of running away from Heron, they were heading right for it. 
With crowds of union members still gathering in the streets of Heron, the escaped workers didn't have a chance. Four strikebreakers were captured as they ran into town looking for help. One of them was reportedly hanged that night, while the other three, including the assistant mine superintendent, were shot and killed shortly after. As the morning of June 22, 1922 got brighter, the carnage on the streets of Heron was getting worse. Six more workers were found and killed, bringing the overnight total to 11. Another six men, who had managed to escape being slaughtered in the woods, were quickly chased down by the mob. They were ordered to strip down and crawl to the Heron Cemetery, where a massive crowd had been gathering all night. By midday, the atmosphere at the cemetery had reached a boiling point. Over 1,000 people had gathered to watch the remaining mine workers suffer their gruesome end. As the strikebreakers were being tied together with rope, the crowd shouted, Scabs! Scabs! The humiliation and savagery continued as union members beat them, urinated on them, and used them for target practice. After that, anyone lucky enough to still be breathing had their throats cut. I could hell, I was out there at the cemetery and saw them people get killed. It's like killing dogs. I was right there close as shit, four, five, six feet from me. I saw a woman there go up to the cemetery and try to give a guy a drink and they knocked it out of her hand and said, we'll kick your ass and throw you down there with him and all that stuff. They was determined to kill him, which they finally did, of course. Out of the 50-plus workers, 19 had been murdered since the killing spree began the day before. As if planned, the sheriff arrived to restore order only after the bloodbath had ended. He had conveniently spent the morning surveying the damage left behind at the now-empty mine site. The bodies of the dead men were eventually taken to a building in town and laid out for public viewing. But the people who came to visit were not there to pay their respects. Far from it. As locals came out in droves to witness the macabre spectacle, they spat on the bodies, some even using them to put out their cigarettes. Three days after the massacre, on June 25th, 16 of the 19 victims were buried in unmarked graves in an area of the Heron Cemetery known as Potter's Field. The three others were claimed by their families. Several months after the massacre, another worker died following complications to amputate his leg, making him the 17th victim buried at the cemetery. It should come as no surprise that thousands of residents from Heron and the surrounding area turned out to honor the three union members who died during the initial gunfight. What started as a labor conflict ended with bloodshed, leaving a total of 23 people dead. As news of the horrific event spread, the rest of the country reacted with outrage. Well, all the newspaper guys from Chicago and from Indianapolis and every place, they swarmed in here and sent all their stories out under Heron Dadeline. So then we got, we got the label of the Heron Massacre, and it didn't help Heron very much for a while. President Warren Harding went on record denouncing the ghastly events. Miners across the nation started distancing themselves from the UMWA, which was further proof just how disgusted the public felt. 
An inquest was held by the coroner's office to determine overall responsibility. Not only did the coroner's report ultimately conclude that the strike breakers were killed by unknown individuals, it also ruled that the Southern Illinois Coal Company was, in the end, responsible for the violence that ensued. Criminal proceedings were recommended against the company and members of its senior management, including its owner, William J. Lester. The matter went to court in November 1922. 28 people were indicted on conspiracy to commit murder, with a total of 214 charges being handed down. Yet, despite the evidence and eyewitness testimony, every defendant was acquitted. The case went to court again in early 1923, but, like before, no one was found guilty. Instead, the jury decided that it was William Lester and the Southern Illinois Coal Company who were at fault for hiring strikebreakers and guards. The outcome should not have been a surprise. No jury in a Union mining town was ever going to convict the accused strikers. But there was still nationwide backlash targeted at the Union itself, arguing the UMWA should be held liable for the criminal behavior of its members. Unfortunately, no further legal action was ever taken. With mounting debt and potential lawsuits coming, William Lester decided to cut his losses and sold the mine. The new owners? The United Mine Workers of America. Lester tried developing several other mining operations, but with little success. He eventually moved to Indiana where he became a consultant. As far as the town of Heron, Illinois was concerned, they would have preferred if the violence carried out in June 1922 was just forgotten. And when it came to where the victims were buried, that's exactly what happened. After almost 90 years, the precise location of the gravesite was a mystery. In 2009, a campaign was started to uncover the remains of the 17 slain men buried in the potter's field. A research team that included geographers, a forensic anthropologist, and a retired law enforcement official went to work locating the site. But the process would not be as straightforward as the team expected. The city council strongly opposed the excavation plans, putting a stop to the dig and even preventing access to cemetery records. The team took the matter to court, where a judge ordered the research could move forward unobstructed. The city have agreed to proceed with the research and hopefully uh, they will be able to locate the uh, remains of the Heron Massacre victims and we'll see where that takes us. In November 2013, the researchers located the graves of eight of the men killed in the massacre. Two years later, the remaining graves were discovered. Several families of the murdered men had the remains exhumed and returned for a proper burial. In 2015, on the 93rd anniversary of the massacre, a monument was unveiled in the cemetery. It honored all the strikebreakers who were killed during the Heron Mine Massacre. So it depends on which side of the fence you're on. If you're a, if you're a union man, you're not going to condemn the action. If you're an anti-union man, which we have plenty of them around here, uh, we had them then, we still have them. And they're going to do anything to try to make the union look bad. To me, a guy like that is a son of a bitch. You might say, actually, they were taking their bread away from these miners' children. 
And uh, that's pretty hard to take. It's just human nature. When somebody tries to take your living away from you, you're going to fight. Even a wild animal will do that. mine for inspection, never dreaming fate trailed them close by, with a crash that gave them no warning, entombed in that mine there to die. Brave men from all over the country, volunteered to give up their lives, they slaved with unceasing efforts, it seemed that death they defied. Long days and nights they have labored, turned back when great cave-ins fell. While far below patiently waiting, three men were in one living hell. Many times turned back when near rescue, fate seemed always blocking their way. With a prayer on their lips they worked onward, we must win, we must win, pray we may. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. We have won the great fight he was calling. At last we have dug our way through. That great fight against the dark angel. It is one fighting hard all the way. Still a tragedy came with the rescue. From the tomb of those terrible days. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.